we're in part two of what we started last week, a series on the prophets. And this is going to be the prophets, uh, of some of the prophets anyway, of the Old Testament. Uh, and because th while, we, while the world has changed, and we can't really make a cogent argument to say that the world of the Bible is exactly the same as the world today. You know, I've heard people try to do that, but that's not really, uh, it's not really uh, a, a compelling argument. The world has changed quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, but the human heart really hasn't changed that much at all. And, and the messages that these people wrote or preached or lived have a relevance even in our new world, which seems to be getting newer and newer and stranger and stranger every year. I mean, talk about stranger things. I mean, I find the world is getting more and more bizarre and more and more unpredictable, but really the human heart is the same. And when you study these people and their lives and their messages, you see an amazing relevance for today. Uh, last week, we looked at the prophet, who was it? Jonah, yeah, the guy who got swallowed by a ride. And we looked at, at his life, and maybe you saw some things a little differently uh, about the life of Jonah from, from seeing that. And hopefully you read the book. Okay, you can read Jonah in about 15 minutes in, uh, you know, really easy, take a cup of tea and read the whole thing right through all four chapters and you'll, it'll open your eyes. So just to review, we talked about what a prophet is because, again, there's a lot of um, misuse, I think, of this term today, many sort of self-proclaimed prophets, uh, and it's a dangerous thing to do that. You don't see a lot of that in the Bible where people sort of have this kind of self-proclamation and they can somehow, you know, see into your future and tell you all these things about yourself and you, you go visit them and they're sort of the seer that does that and they kind of put themselves up on a pedestal. You don't really see that. What you see in the Old Testament is these people would do a lot of proclamation, a lot of what we can call forth-telling. They would say, this is what God thinks. This is the heart of God on this particular matter. And usually it was a call to holiness that was taking place there. And the prophet wouldn't always be liked. In fact, they were often persecuted and disliked because they would call people back to a standard of holiness that they already knew about, uh, especially if they were speaking to Israel. But at times, of course, they would also say, this is what's going to happen. And they would be able to uh, uh, see something that would happen in the near future. And by the way, if they ever got it wrong, uh, and they and they you know said the Lord said this will happen, and it didn't happen, there was a really severe penalty for prophets back in that time. Do you know what it was if they got it wrong? Yeah, they would execute them. They would. That was the law back then. So it was pretty serious business. If you, if you went on record and said, you know, God said to me, this is going to happen. And it, what concerns me today is you get a lot of people who say that, and then when it doesn't happen, there's all kinds of ways around that. There's all kinds of wiggling 
you know, well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe I got the time wrong, or maybe people didn't pray it in. There weren't enough people praying about the prophecy that I gave. And so because people weren't praying enough, it didn't happen like I said it would. And so there's some wiggling around there, and you do not see this kind of wiggling in the Old Testament. People, when they went on record and said, the Lord said this will happen. If it didn't happen, serious, serious business. You have prophets before the period of the kings, which is the pre-monarchy kind of prophets. You have prophets during the times of the kings, which is in the monarchy. And you have these written prophets. We're going to look at one of them today. And of course, you have all these big events, these big current events, and we went over them last, uh, last week, I'm just zipping through really, really fast, and you can visit with our message uh, online, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, and uh, our website is up to date as well, so everything is there. You have this, the Civil War that, that uh, starts more or less in 922, where you have Israel divided. And effectively, it's very similar to what we would call a civil war today. You have the Assyrians who will come in and take the north from 740 to 722. And all these prophets, the reason why I say this is because these prophets are addressing these situations when they speak. Sometimes they're predicting them when they speak, which is what we're going to see today. And uh, Jonah, he had uh, his life that we saw last week is uh, before this time where the Assyrians uh, would come in and conquer Israel, just before. And you see that Jonah actually has some success when he preaches to the capital city of Nineveh there, uh, that they actually do repent. Well, later they would take the whole nation of Israel, all right? Next big event is the, the probably the most known, and that's when the Babylonians took the south and took Jerusalem. And uh, finally, they, they essentially wiped it out in 586 BC. No more temple, no more city, everything destroyed. And you will see that in 2 Kings chapter 25. That's the event that our prophet today is going to predict uh, that will happen. And after this, you will see the Medo-Persians conquer the Babylonians. You see this in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And then they will return. Cyrus, the non-Jewish, non-believing pagan uh, king, will bring the exiles back to Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt under uh, you know, Zerubbabel and people like that. It's a funny name, isn't it? Can you say that with me? Zerubbabel. First time I heard that word, I heard a preacher say Zerubbabel, I almost laughed. I couldn't believe the name, but that's one of the people instrumental in the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple period, which is dedicated, uh, uh, sorry, in Ezra chapter 6. I had the wrong slide on the screen, okay? Uh, so these are the big current events of the days that some of these prophets are navigating in and out of and speaking to. So today we're going to look at another strange name, and this, we sometimes use the name Habakkuk when we say this, and we say Habakkuk. The way you pronounce this in Hebrew is Habakkuk, okay? You try that with me, Habakkuk. Yeah, you got to do the at the beginning, right? So just, the, he's the kook, okay? He's the, he's the Habs fan who's the kook. Okay, you can remember that. So that's the way that you pronounce it, and his name means to embrace uh, uh, Habakkuk, okay? So the, the really cool thing about this prophet and what makes him so relevant for today, 
It's, it's one of the, I mean, it sticks out so much. This is what we call a minor prophet because the minor prophets, they have a smaller body of work, but doesn't mean they're less important, but we sometimes call him a minor prophet. But the really amazing thing about Habakkuk is that he's a complainer. So we saw the humanity of Jonah last week because Jonah does what? God commands him to preach to, uh, to the Ninevites, capital city of Assyria. And what does Jonah do? He flat out disobeys. He makes no bones about it. He runs completely the other direction as far as possible away from God's call. He runs away with no, he has no shame about it. And, you know, we find him fast asleep, snoring, you know, in a vessel that's going to be torn apart by a storm. And, the, you know, we pick up the story from there. He's very human, Jonah. We see his, his uh, strong dislike of the people who God cares about through the story. He's strong, he hates them, the Assyrians. He can't stand them. And this is why he doesn't want to preach to them, because he knows that God will respond to them if they repent. And he doesn't want that. He wants God to judge them. He wants God to wipe them out, and God does not. And you see the, this, the story of Jonah actually ends with God questioning Jonah about why he doesn't seem to care about these people. In Habakkuk, you're going to see a prophet. This is a written prophet. So he leaves us these kinds of oracles behind that we can read. And he complains. So he is a complainer to God. And he's a prophet. So lest you think that these people were uh, sort of superhuman and, uh, you know, somehow uh, lived on a different plane than the rest of humanity, they are very, very human people. I love the passage in James talking about uh, Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us, James says. And we look at that and we say, well, I mean, he's not like us. This is a guy who, whose prayers raised dead people and whose, I mean, weather, you know, stopped the rain for three years and, you know, prophets of, uh, of Asherah and Baal on the confrontation on Mount Carmel and all of that. We're not like him. And yet, Here's James saying, just like us, they're human, just like we are. So you're going to see in, in Habakkuk this kind of uh, humanity on full display. And really what's going on in this book, and this is, this is another one that you can read in 15 minutes, really. It's a discussion between him and God about God and the way God works and why God works the way that he does and you see these kinds of frustrations from the prophet are so relevant to us today. So first complaint, because this is, he gets right into it right from the beginning of the book. And this is what he says. Forget about that it's, that it's a prophet from, you know, the, the, the time just before the Babylonian captivity of, of Jerusalem. Forget about that, that it's, you know, 2,600 years old. Forget that you even heard his name. Just close your eyes and listen to this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? 
or cry to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so the justice is perverted. What? That amazing insight. That's the way that people feel today. The people question God the exact same way today. You probably have found yourself asking the very same questions about God. When you look around on planet Earth, when you look at your own sort of micro world, when you look at the greater world, you look at it and you, you see this kind of where is God? Why is there this inaction? Why is there this injustice? Why is there this violence? Why does the law seem to be paralyzed and ineffective and justice never prevails? Why? And he's asking this directly to God. Wow. You talk about relevant. You talk about a human. He is very, very bold. And he is complaining here. It's not about God's existence. Notice. He's not saying, therefore, you don't exist because da, 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 da. It's, he's not questioning the existence of God. Sometimes we do that, and we say, well, you know, there's so much injustice in the world, and if God was all good and all holy and all powerful, and there's all this injustice and all this evil, therefore God does not exist. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing here is he is challenging, complaining, not about the existence of God, but about God's character. And that may, in some senses, actually be worse. Because if God exists and God is not going to do anything about injustice and evil and sin, well, then you have an all-powerful being who's not all good. And if you have an all-powerful being who's not all good, you're in serious, serious trouble. So in any case, he pours out his heart here in the first few verses of the book, and God's going to answer him. And this is the way the book is structured, complaint answer, complaint, answer, really, really simple. So God's answer is interesting. You know, he doesn't say, you're a prophet, you ought to keep your mouth closed and do as I say. Don't question me. Don't ask me questions. You're not supposed to ask me questions. You're supposed to follow what I say. And because you've asked me questions, you're sinning and you're doubting and I'm not going to you know, speak with you anymore, and God folds his arm and says, this prophet, I just, I need to find another one. No, God's going to answer him. But the answer he may not like, of course, but God's going to answer him, and this is what he says. At the, at the cry of, of, of the prophet talking about God's inaction, here's what he's going to say. And don't forget, this man is prophesying about his own nation. So he sees this evil within his nation, within the walls of the city. He sees this. He sees this corruption. He sees this injustice. He sees this violence. It, within God's city, effectively, in that day, this is what he sees. And this is going to be God's answer to the complaint. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. 
For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. So I'm going to act, uh, Habakkuk, but you may not like the way that I act. I am raising up the Babylonians. Wow. That ruthless and impetuous people to, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. Remember, he's complaining about how the law is paralyzed. And here's God's answer. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. I am raising them up, Mr. Prophet. This is really bizarre. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. And there's descriptions about how powerful they are. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build up earthen ramps to capture them, and then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. What's he doing? He's telling the prophet, I'm bringing the Babylonians here. You want justice. That's my justice. This is really, this is going to get, if you're Habakkuk, you're going to ask another question, right? What will your question be before you read it? Exactly. He, if, I were, if I were the prophet, I'd say, excuse me? Like, uh, uh, am I talking to the right uh, deity here? What's with, you're going to use, uh, I want justice, but you're going to use them to bring justice? That's what I would ask anyway. And so, it, true to form, the prophet, again, he's human, he's going to say, oh, I have another, another question here. Are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One? We, we will not die. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to punish, them to execute judgment. Oh, rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So why then do you tolerate the treacherous? It's a good question, I suppose. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I mean, our city may be bad, but they're worse than we are. And you're going to use them to bring justice? You're going to use them to deal with the immorality, with the evil, with the sin in our city? You're going to do that? You're going to use them? But we're better than them. Good question. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. And the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. Like a fisherman. He's likening the Babylonians to, you know, they've got this huge net. He gathers them up in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad and he even sacrifices to his net, you know, because he just, that's the king and the, the, the conquers just like, like catching fish. And you're going to use this person? 
Is he to keep on emptying his net? Is, is Babylon going to continue doing this? Destroying nations without mercy? You're bringing the Babylonians over here? This is, wow, this is quite a question that he's asking. So it seems like, what is God doing? First, it seems like he's doing nothing. And then God says, I'm going to do something, but I'm going to use people that are the farthest from your mind, Habakkuk. But I'm going to use those people to bring my justice. What do you think of that? Well, if you're Habakkuk, maybe you're going to start getting angry now. Maybe you're going to start saying, well, I don't like you, God. I, don't, I think you're, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong. There's a character issue with you, God. I'm really frustrated with this. You ever felt that way? He was, he's bold enough to ask God this, and he leaves it behind for us to read two and a half millennia later. I mean, we feel like this today, if we're being honest. And God is going to answer this complaint as well. He's not going to say, oh, you're, you're just a lost cause, Habakkuk. You just don't see it. You just don't see it. I'm not, I'm not wasting my time with you. You're, you're sinful, you're corrupt, you're a doubter, you don't understand me. No, he's going to answer him, and he's going to give him a, a, a bigger, more even grandiose answer. You see at the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk is kind of sitting there, and he's saying, I'm going to fold my arms, and I'm going to wait for God to answer. And here's God's answer, verse 2, chapter 2. Write down the revelation, he says, and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it, effectively a courier. So a courier can deliver what I'm going to say, and make sure you write it down, and make sure you write it clearly what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you the answer. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false, though it linger, wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. It will come. It will happen, but you need to wait for it. Implication, you lack patience. If it was Yoda speaking, you know, patience, <laughs> you, you lack patience. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What's coming? See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest. Uh, it, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Who's he talking about? The Babylonians. And he's, God is speaking about them using a, a, a person as the example. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn. All the nations are going to flip and the Babylonians are going to be conquered. And then you see all of these woes that he gives. There's about five of them. 
Woe to him who piles up stolen goods in in, uh, verse 6. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain in uh, verse uh, 9. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, verse 12. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk so that he can gaze on them. And this is a, a metaphor for, uh, you know, the, you, you're lulling the nation into, into sleep so you can destroy it. Um, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? Speaking about their idolatry. And what is he saying? Destruction is going to come to the Babylonians. You're not seeing this. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming. Uh, you see this uh, uh, kind of as a picture of, uh, of judgment. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In verse 16, the cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. So in, sh- in short terms, Habakkuk, the Babylonians are going to be destroyed. And you don't see that. You don't see the bigger picture. You don't see what I'm going to do in the grand scheme of it. Your, your vision is short. You're not seeing far enough. You don't see how my hand is working this whole thing out. And you've got to come to grips with that. And there's a couple of passages that you'll see in a moment that are actually uh, referred to in the New Testament. Now, this is a really interesting thing about the book. After, after God gives this answer, and he says, judgment is coming to the Babylonians, uh, Mr. Prophet. And you're not seeing that, but it's coming to them as well. You would expect maybe Habakkuk to... to just be frustrated and to kind of be silent or be confused. Uh, you know, you'd see it, maybe you're predicting a reaction that if it were you or me, maybe we would just say, I just don't get it, God. I just don't understand why you would use them in the first place. And it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And that may be the way that we would typically react or maybe what we're wanting to see when we read uh, on, but when you read the book and you see chapter three, it's really interesting change of heart that the prophet has, because what he does is he starts to sing, uh, and we know that this this uh, song uh, or this prayer would have been put to song because there's musical terms that are referred to in the in the prayer, and some of them you actually see in the psalms, and uh, it almost reads like a psalm. This, this chapter 3 of the uh, last chapter of this book. And you see the prophets start to describe uh, the power of God using all kinds of different metaphors about weather and earthquakes and all kinds of symbols of judgment and images of judgment and plague and pestilence and earthquake and mountains collapsing and and, and God controlling all of this. It's like a picture of the destructive power of God at work. And he's kind of singing about this as if um, to worship God through this prayer. So it's like he understands. The, the, he's coming to grips with 
the destructive holy power of God, the judgment of God, even that's coming to Jerusalem. So he, he seems to, to acknowledge this and to recognize this as you look to, for example, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound. Uh, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So he says, we're going to be invaded. I am frightened by that invasion that's coming, but I will wait patiently. Remember, wait for it. I will wait patiently because the day of calamity is going to come on them. Because he, what he's doing is he's starting to appreciate and even worship God who is in control of the situation. The, and this is a kind of a larger scope that he has. His vision is, is wider. You know, he's using a, a wider angle lens, if you will. And he sees more and understands more, and it propels him to worship God, even though he's frightened, even though there's, there's uh, terror that is going to come to Jerusalem. He sees that, but he also sees beyond that, and he sees what's going to happen even to the Babylonians, and it propels him to worship God. It propels him to pray. It motivates him to pray. And, the, and there's a wonderful conclusion uh, to, to the book. Um, if you're looking for passages in the Old Testament to memorize, this is just beautifully stated. Though the fig tree does not bud. And uh, uh, verse 17, yeah, this fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, it's poverty, it's nothing, it's barren, the fruit is not yielding ground, there's no livestock. It's like it's been wiped out. This is what's going to happen when the Babylonians come. Though there is no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Folks, that, that, there's a maturity that this prophet has acquired. I'm not sure. We're not told why is he able to react that way, but it's a lesson to us when you're at the bottom of the barrel and there's nothing left, what does he do? I will rejoice in the Lord. What did Paul say to the Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice, he says. It's an imperative. It's a command. This prophet in the Old Testament is saying there's trouble that I know is going to come, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Sounds like something David would write in the Psalms. He enables me to go on the heights. 
And it ends, uh, it says clearly that this is intended to be for the director of music. And it's supposed to be played with stringed instruments. What's he doing? He's praying. He's worshiping God because he acknowledges, yes, trouble's coming. I see it. But I will rejoice in God because he has the whole thing under control. And I will rejoice, I will praise him because deliverance will ultimately come and God is going to be my strength when it's all over. And that, my friends, should give you hope when you're facing a difficult, trying time where it's like there's no way, there's no solution. It's darkness everywhere. It's walls everywhere. It's trouble everywhere. Everything is going down the drain. Yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. You see, and this is what this prophet does. The two passages that the New Testament writers pick up on, uh, the one from um, uh, chapter 1, I think it is, I'm about to do something even in your days. And the way Habakkuk says, he says, look, you scoffers, I'm about to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe, even if you were told. In the book of Acts, this is, the, this is preached and quoted telling the people, watch out. Watch out that you don't fall into disbelief about Jesus, the Messiah. Watch out because the same thing is going to happen to you that's happened to the, to the people back in the Babylonian captivity. Unbelief that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. And it's used as a warning in the apostles' preaching to tell the people, watch it. You better respond to Jesus with faith. And the other passage, which is used by three different books, Paul uses it in Galatians, Paul uses it in Romans, and the author of Hebrews uses it. The righteous will live by faith. And the way that that is written and the context each time is faith in who? In who specifically? Jesus. So the argument is, when you have faith in Jesus, he makes you righteous. The righteous will live by faith, not by doing all kinds of great stuff. This is not what justifies you before God. You want to do good works. It's good. You should do good works, but that does not justify you before God. What justifies you before God is your faith in Jesus. And these writers are arguing that the prophet Habakkuk was, was talking about this hundreds of years before. The righteous will live by faith. And so in a sense, God gives this prophet the gospel hundreds of years in advance as a response to his complaints. Do you see that? And maybe the prophet didn't see it, but the writers of the New Testament say, yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. So much, much bigger picture thing that is being put on display here through this prophet, and his response is amazing. So four little tips for you uh, the, from the message of this prophet, and you guys can come and play in the background. We'll wind up the service in just a minute. Um, there's, there's four things. And number one, um, don't be um, uh, afraid, I'll use that term, to complain to God. You're not going to, you're not going to wound God. Like, he's not going to require counseling 
after you complain to him. You know, he's not going to call a meeting of the angels and say, oh, you know, uh, uh, my feelings are really hurt. You know, th this person said this about me and, you know, about my character and it really, really hurt my feelings. And God's not going to be, he's not going to be hurt by your complaint. It's better for you to be honest with God and come to God boldly with your issue and with your problem. Pray about it. You, you're, you, you, that's what prayer is. It's communicating with God. And sometimes we get into a mode where we think it's sinful to say something that might be negative to God. No, He can handle your complaints. Number two, sometimes God is going to use those Babylonians. Sometimes He's going to use those situations and those people that you would think would be the most unlikely. He's going to use them. And it may confuse you and it may frustrate you, but sometimes, at times, He uses Babylonians for a temporary purpose, whatever it is, it's His business. So sometimes you have to realize that and say, well, maybe this is a Babylonian moment that I don't understand. Your vision is limited, but God's plan is not. You know, the plan that God has for your life is so much larger than what you're able to see with your little, your little narrow angle lens. His plan is larger, it's wider, it's wide angle. And sometimes you have to take steps and you don't know exactly where you're going. But God's plan is bigger than your vision. And finally, what is your tune? This is a song that he sings at the end here, the prophet. What's the tune that you're singing to yourself? Is it a tune about pessimism and negativity and, you know, God has left me in these problems, in these circumstances? Or is it, no, I will worship God in spite of what is going on because I know he will be faithful and he will work this situation out. So I continue to hold his hand and to be faithful. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for your word from this old prophet. Uh, Lord, a man bold enough to put his complaints down in, in paper for us to read uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later. I pray for each person in this room, those who are watching online, those who are going to watch or listen to recordings. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you help us to reorient and to reprioritize and once again make that decision to rejoice and to worship and to trust in you? We may not understand, we may not feel it, we may not get it, but Lord, may we volitionally respond to your grace by holding on even in storms. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids over at number 11. There's still some coffee and tea. You can visit also at the desk in the hallway. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday.